Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is episode 217 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This is the last episode of 2018, and we're joined by fly fishing guide John McKinney. John's going to tell us what it's like to live and work as a fly fishing guide in the state of Montana. We're going to learn about a crazy elk he met once out on the river. We're going to learn about the different rivers and how long it takes to get there, and just how long a fishing day can go in the state of Montana. John's going to be in town in January for the Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, and he will be hosting a happy hour at Whitlow's on Wilson on January 10th. That is also Half Price Sandwich Day, dining only, excludes seafood. He'll be telling us about the times later on in the podcast. So without further ado, let's find out what John does and how much he just enjoys living life in Montana. Let's get this started. All right. On this episode, we have John McKinney from Montana. John, where are you checking in with us today? I'm in Phillipsburg, Montana. We got a little bit of snow last night. Um, sitting here next to the heater with my big dog and, uh, yeah, just hanging out. Where is Phillipsburg? 
So Phillipsburg is western Montana. Uh, if you look in a map, you'll find Missoula and you'll find Butte. And we're kind of right in between both of those. Okay. So it's a great central location. Um, yeah, lots of water. It's kind of a – Phillipsburg is a little bit of a hidden gem in Montana, we like to say. Kind of a double entendre. There's a lot of mining history around the area, but it's a cool little town that, you know, is just starting to be discovered. So, Is it named after Philip? It's not, no. All right. Good guess, though. Yeah. Uh, for those <laughs> listening, uh, who's your celebrity doppelganger they can picture while we listen to you speak? Uh, he plays third base for the uh, L.A. Dodgers. L.A. Dodgers. I don't know who that is. Oh, gosh. Well, should I look it up? Turner. Turner. Yep. All right. I'm going to have to look him up. Yep. I got confused with him quite a bit through the oh, summer. Yeah. L.A. Dodgers? Yep. Third base. Let's see. Justin Turner. Justin Turner. Exactly. There you go. All right. I'll take that. Yeah. Yep. All right. So it's been a couple of years since we spoke. Last uh, time I saw you, you came out to Beer Tie yep. in May. And then we went fishing. We got hit by some lady who wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and then you caught like six species of fish, and I caught a snakehead. It was a pretty awesome morning. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah, a lot of fish that I had never seen before, yeah. living out west my whole life and fishing for trout. So it was a unique experience. <laughs> let's, let's talk about your upbringing. Where were you born? Uh, I grew up in Colorado. So I grew up in Glenwood Springs, which is western Colorado, a couple hours west of Denver, um, near Aspen and Vale. No, so for I the grew up smelly, hot water there. Yes, the world famous hot springs. Why would you leave Colorado? Well, it's a good question. You know, I grew up in Glenwood and, you know, I ended up going to school on the Front Range in Greeley, where another smelly town. Yeah, that's the, because the of cattle. Smell. Right. Yes, exactly. So, but yeah, from Glenwood out to the Front Range and, you know, I spent about 10 years on the Front Range and over that time Colorado really had a big growth spurt and you know, the Front Range was getting very crowded, and I had a desire to get back to the mountains. And, you know, something about Glenwood, I just didn't want to go back there. You know, just all the growth in Colorado, and I had seen, been to Montana a few times, and that always stuck in my mind. And when I decided to move back to the mountains, I headed north instead of going back to the mountains in Colorado. That works. So what was your yeah. childhood like? Uh, it was, it was great. You know, Glenwood is an awesome place to grow up. Uh, you know, outdoorsman's dream, you know, it's right at the intersection of the Roaring Fork and the Colorado rivers and the frying pan, not too far away either. So, you know, the river I grew up fishing on was the Roaring Fork and the Colorado and you know, my dad loves to tell people that my first fishing trip, I was two months old. So shortly after I was born, they strapped me into a car seat in a Jeep, and we drove up to a lake up in the mountains. And that was my first time going camping at just a young a young lad. 
And then, you know, growing up, you know, my dad took me fishing all the time. We would, you know, fish a lot of lakes when I was a kid, you know, chucking bait and drowning worms. And I remember the revolution of power bait as a child, which changed my life for a while. And, you know, after that, when I started to get a little older, started learning how to fly fish. And then, as I like to say, it kind of ruined me after that. Indeed it can, especially when you're <laughs> in spots like that. My goodness. Yeah. Oh, just beautiful spots to to be able to, you know, go out and recreate. And yeah, great place to grow up. Fun. What did you study out in Greeley? So I went to Greeley and I studied business management it was my degree and kind of my path when I went to Greeley, I grew up in Glenwood and Part of my upbringing, even though I was outside a lot, um, I grew up as the fat kid. So when I got to Greeley, one thing that I discovered was uh, kind of health and fitness. And I spent most of my time in Greeley in the rec center. So I was working out a lot because around Greeley, there's not a lot of fishing opportunities, really. So, you know, that was before I knew about fishing for, you know, smallmouth or you know, crappie and stuff like that, which there's a lot of, but, you know, I kind of spent my time in the rec center. And when I got done with school, that was kind of the first career path that I moved into was working in some health and fitness facilities. So I did that for a while. And then I finally decided that I wanted to try and go fishing for a living. Absolutely. You didn't do any cow yeah. tipping while you were in Greeley, did you? Uh, it might have been a couple nights that are a little fuzzy, but that is what Greeley's known for, yeah. are all the cattle. Unfortunately, you know when you've lived there too long that you get immune to the smell. So after I got done with my degree and started walking around, I was like, huh, I don't smell much. I guess it's time to time to move. Yeah, I, we used to <laughs> go to sleepaway camp in the Poconos, and there was a farm about a mile away when that wind blew right into camp it was oh really yeah bad. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, i don't i'm not used to that smell around here i smell exhaust i can imagine lawnmowers all the time yep leaf blowers and exhaust and <laughs> yeah. what so what was your first job in fishing did you start off as like a shop rat sweeping floors and picking flies out of the carpet yeah pretty much you know so i kind of moved into working at the health and fitness facilities and I did that for about seven years and kind of moved up the ladder and had a handful of different management roles through that time and you know when I really decided to pursue getting into the fishing industry I basically just quit the jobs I had and I drove to Montana and I ended up at a kind of a dude ranch slash fishing lodge and they kind of let me work in the shop for the summer. So I showed up halfway through the season and they kind of needed a little bit of extra help. So I jumped in and, you know, through that summer, I helped people get set up with waiters and cleaned up the shop and did inventory of flies, which is not a very enjoyable job, I would say. We had a guy once do our inventory by weight. Orvis had sent the actual weight of every ah. fly and size see that's probably the easy the way to do it yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely yeah that summer that i had to do inventory there was a 
huge backstock of flies that have probably been there, you know, probably as long as I've been alive, I would guess. And, you know, I was tasked with counting every one of them. So I had lots of long days that fall, you know, kind of losing my mind, counting old patterns that nobody was using anymore and probably would not get used again. They probably still work, right? The oh, yeah. Haven't changed. No. No, they would still work. I think the fishermen have changed more. <laughs> so how'd you go from cleaning up shops to guiding and having a casting certification? Well, you know, when I landed at that lodge uh, outside of Bozeman, it was kind of a fortuitous timing uh, for myself. You know, there were some transitions going on there as far as management and ownership of the lodge and also transitions in their kind of fishing department. Um, so I spent my first summer there just working in the shop and, you know, getting to know the guides, picking people's brains and obviously fishing a ton, just getting to learn the waters. And, you know, I came back that winter and I worked as a breakfast server. So I was up every day at 6am and serving breakfast to the guests and, the managers at the time really liked my attitude and you know by the end of that winter they told me that they wanted me to manage the fishing program so i went from working in the shop to kind of being the manager of all these guides that have been there for you know a dozen years or more so luckily the guides that were there were very welcoming to me and you know gave me a lot of advice and answered all the questions i had so it was a good transition, so I moved into that management role, and they, the managers of the lodge at the time hired somebody to be the outfitter, and part of that process is that they said, well, we got this guy who's going to manage the program, and we want him to guide, so we're going to have you sign him off as a guide and you know, get rolling from there. So the next couple summers, I was guiding along with managing the program, so I would be in the shop half of the days and then i'd be on the water half the days and you know that happened for a few summers and then i got enough guide days to where i was able to become the outfitter and ran the entire fishing program for a couple years at the lodge and you know part of that evolution is you know obviously as we were trying to grow the program i saw you know, you mentioned the, the casting certification. I saw that as something that could really help the guides, you know, could be great team building as we were working towards that goal and could help the overall program as, you know, working in that kind of environment of a dude ranch fishing lodge, majority of the clients were, were brand new to fly fishing. So teaching them how to cast was a big part of the equation. So that's kind of how we headed down that road of looking into the casting certification. Do you want to walk us through that process? In my fishing club, it's kind of a big deal to get your casting sure. certification as we're an IFF yeah. club. Not yep. something I ever really wanted to pursue. I'm kind of done taking tests. Yeah. Studying. <laughs> and like, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that again. So how did you yeah. go through the whole process? So it was a rigorous process. It took, I think, close to three years before a group of us actually tested to get the certification. Uh, so it was very intense. But, you know, in my position from the manager and I was kind of coming into guiding 
with a new perspective as opposed to, you know, somebody who's been guiding for a long time and then sees this casting certification come in. You know, I've gotten mixed feedback from some guides that, you know, that test doesn't equate to fishing necessarily. And I think that can be debated either way. But, you know, I was excited about it because, you know, I was looking at it from the teaching perspective and, you know, making it easier to teach people how to cast. But, through those couple years, we worked with, uh, you know, a handful of mentors. And, you know, fortunately, being in Montana, there are ton- quite a few certified casting instructors and actually master casters in the region. And the thing that I love about the, you know, FFI is that they are very supportive and, you know, very helpful. So, one per- the first person that we were able to mentor with is... Molly Semenek, who's a master casting instructor, and she's actually on the Board of Governors as well. Um, Now she does a lot of two-handed casting instruction, which is kind of baffling to me, being a trout fisherman and single-hand fishing. Um, But she was the first person that we mentored with, and we worked with Molly for... You know, I think one whole summer where she came out and worked with our crew and, you know, it was hours of, you know, working with her and then hours of practice after that. And, you know, and then the next summer we had somebody else come out and do some more mentoring. You know, the hard thing being in Montana is that you can only practice for so many months out of the year. So that's kind of what forced the, the thing to draw on for so long. But I've heard similar stories from other people as well that, you know, it's not an easy process. Um, But we also work with Bruce Richards, who's a very accomplished caster and works with scientific angler. And, you know, one winter we kind of made the commitment that, you know, we're going to test in the spring. So, you know, that winter we were actually casting outside a lot in the snow. You know, we found indoor facilities to practice and, really just kind of hammered on it and you know eventually we all got it was four of us who actually went to test that spring and we all got pretty proficient in casting I felt like Um, but the most difficult part of the whole test is kind of the teaching aspect and being able to you know kind of speak the language of the federation and you know be able to say things succinctly so that they you know, know that you really have that true understanding of all the principles and, you know, the fundamentals of casting and being able to pass that on to somebody who might be brand new or even a, you know, more accomplished caster that might have hit a wall somewhere and you got to figure out how to get them to that next step. So if there are listeners that are sort of on the cusp about getting theirs, what would you suggest to them? Uh, I would say work with as many people who have certifications as you can, you know, through the process, you know, I mentioned those two that we got a mentor with, but I, I was able to, you know, cast with probably three or four um, other people who had certifications as well. And you kind of pick up something different from each person who's gone through the process I found. And, you know, like I said, everybody that I encountered was, you know, very supportive and, and helpful. And people were saying, you know, I'll do what I can, you know, videotape yourself casting, send it to me, I'll give you some feedback. Um, 
yeah, so I would, you know, you know, use that resource as much as you can that, that there is with the other certified casters. Let's say someone's having trouble double hauling. Yep. They're just not getting the, um, like the chewing bubble gum and patting your head bit of uh-huh, right back, sure. left arm sure. down. What would you tell them? You know, the one pointer that I got when I was first learning how to double cast uh, or double haul was think about <clears throat> when you're doing your haul having like you have a drum sitting on your on your hip. So for me, it'd be on my left hip because I'm hauling with my left hand. And, you know, what was explained to me is think about beating the drum because the thing I had trouble with is I could get the first haul down, but then I would leave my hand down there. And it would just be stuck. But that visualization for me of beating that drum, you know, hitting the drum and feed it back. That is something that really, you know, stuck in my head for some reason. And, you know, I think it kind of goes back to what I said a few minutes ago about just talking to as many people as you can. Because, you know, each person will explain steps a little differently. And, you know, for somebody that might stick. And for someone else, there might be another pointer that sticks. And another thing with the double haul that I've found, um, which is another trick that I learned from a, from an instructor, is instead of trying to cast, you know, your normal cast where you're casting over your head, you know, go down and cast almost on the lawn so that you can see what your loops are doing. So it's kind of hard to explain, you know, it, but if you do it, I've had a lot of students where I've showed it, showed this trick to them where you're actually casting, where you're, you know, have, have your, your line laying on the lawn and you're doing a haul and a return and you let it lay out and lay it down on the lawn and you can actually see your loop traveling in front of you, see it sit down and you kind of put it together a little bit better that way. I think Joan Wolf does that on her casting video. It could be. Yeah. Because it, it's a trick that I learned from from Molly, who I mentioned earlier, and she is a uh, you know she teaches a lot of Joan Wolf's uh, principles. Fantastic! Yeah. So not only are you a certified casting instructor, you're also Orvis endorsed. So what does that entail? Well, you know, as I've gone through kind of my fishing career, I the, the lodge that I landed at was a Orvis endorsed lodge. Um, so I feel pretty fortunate that I was able to land there because I think that Orvis really treats fly fishing in a in a good way. You know, the last, you know, five to ten years where they've had the push to introduce new anglers to the sport through FF 101, I think is a great program. Um, but I think, you know, the way that they look at it as far as, you know, customer service is kind of the number one priority for an Orvis endorsed guide. You know, one thing I learned really quickly getting into guiding is that the best fisherman on the river might be a really crappy guide because he's not very good with people and doesn't present himself in the right way. But that's one thing that Orvis really pushes is, you know, that presentation, that first impression and kind of how you deal with clients through the day, um, I think is huge. You know, I've had feedback from a lot of quite a few clients that, you know, have fished all over the world. And, you know, they say that that Orvis name is something that they always are looking for. There's a standard to it. Exactly. Exactly. I used to work in, uh, a British company that did standardizations, ISO 2000, 2001, 
and you have to be standardized and do something the right way by the book if you want to that's get right. a certification. Yeah, you know if you're right. going to one of those companies, they're going to have their bookkeeping proper, their paperwork in check. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Exactly. It's not just some crackpot dude who's run the show out of the garage. Like, yes. Like, like me. Photos, <laughs> yeah. I was just cleaning the boat out all the leaves and rain recently. Uh-huh. <laughs> I run this out of my garage. Yeah, uh, and I'm kind of in the same boat now since I left that lodge. Um, you know, I have my own outfitting business. Unfortunately, I haven't got that endorsed as an endorsed outfitter, but I'm still affiliated with a couple other lodges that I subcontract through. Very nice. Just because I, you know, I respect that Orvis name and, you know, I know that working for that lodge that they do things the right way and they you know one lodge that i'm affiliated with uh the big hole lodge is about an hour from phillipsburg but the big hole lodge was awarded lodge of the year just two years ago so they're you know great people to work with and you know being familiar with the orvis brand you know it was kind of a really great transition for me where i could you know step in and be able to help them out and you know, know that I can fit in and, and help them in the right way. So if Phillipsburg is not named after Philip, is there no actual giant hole in the ground up there? There's not, no. Another misnomer. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I didn't know. I know there's a giant flaming hole somewhere in like Uzbekistan. Uh -huh. You got a crater in Oregon. <laughs> no big hole up there. Well, let's get well into, there's one in Butte, but unfortunately Butte? the one in Butte is from mining. So yeah. you have the Berkeley pit. It's not exactly flaming, but some snow geese have recently migrated through the area and tried to land there, and it didn't turn out too well for them. They weren't Canada geese, were they? Because that would be awesome. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I like we, we could have lucked out that way. <laughs> there's always they're, they're, They stand on my daughter's school on the edge and just look at you in the morning when you yeah in. sure sure what are you doing up there you stupid animal yeah yeah there's canadian geese flock through this area in the spring it's kind of their mating grounds and you know one really famous float that you can do in montana is the smith river which is a multi-day float through a canyon stretch and the times that i've done it have been in the spring and that's where all the geese are going to mate so like he might be yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you might be, you know, floating and having a good time and might have one too many beers that night. And then right at daybreak the next day, you get woke up by the serenades of honking geese. Ugh. So it's a great alarm. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've got your background pretty well set. Anything else about you before we get into the fantasticness that is Montana? Boy, you know, I think we've we've nailed it. Um, yeah, I, not that I can think of right now. All right. Well, let's get into Montana. What is it like to live in Montana? You know, we've got, I'm an East Coaster. We've got people all over the country and world listening that may not have been. Sure. I have not been in Montana in my adult life. Uh, okay. So, so what is it like to live in Montana? You've seen what it's like here. We were driving through Arlington, 
It took yep. like an hour to go 11 miles. Sure. Uh, skyscrapers, <laughs> noise, construction. Everyone here stressed out. I imagine that's the opposite. It is quite the opposite. You know, it is a long winter, I will admit, but you kind of take those sacrifices for what you what you're able to experience but you know the thing that really drew me to montana from colorado uh there's great fishing in colorado you know beautiful mountains but the first time i came to montana i was kind of blown away we kind of were driving across a big chunk of the state and i noticed that you know, every 50 to 100 miles, we'd cross a bridge, and I'd look at the sign, and it'd be a different river. I'd be like, wow, huh, another river? So I was kind of blown away by just the just the sheer number of different trout streams that are just in kind of a small area. I was kind of blown away by that. And, you know, the other thing that kind of drew me initially to Montana is just how fast you can be in the wilderness really you know now my first trip to montana we went to missoula and missoula is a fairly good sized city you know 75,000 to 100,000 people college town um but you drive you know 15 minutes outside of missoula and you're in the middle of nowhere out by that testicle um, festival place yes exactly <laughs> exactly i remember that from missoula yep use the bathroom did not stay to eat Yep, that's probably a wise move. <laughs> but that's that's the thing that I that I love about the state, just the sheer number of trout streams. Uh, somebody told me a saying once that you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a great trout stream in Montana. We've got one river here, and that's it. Yeah, I haven't tested the theory with the cat yet, but I think it's pretty true. But, you know, and on top of that, there's, you know, just tons of wilderness in the state, you know, places that you can, you know, walk to in a day. And not many people have been in that spot. Um, you know, it's just a big, big state, just beautiful scenery. What yeah, you know, the and big, the, the big sky, is it is it the elevation? Is it the just how spread out things are? You just can see more. Yeah, I think it's just the vastness, just the vastness of the state. And, you know, and there aren't a lot of really high peaks. You know, there are mountains all over the place, but there aren't any, you know, towering 14,000 foot peaks. So it just kind of opens everything up quite a bit. You know, you really can see the big sky at night as well. You know, you get, you know, a really clear night and, you know, no light pollution and the sky just lights up you can see you know stars for miles i miss that it's i can see pretty orion. unbelievable yeah i can see orion and a bit of cassiopeia a couple other twinkles yeah. but i miss seeing stars at night in the milky way and shooting stars oh yeah it's it's unbelievable what is the food like out there i know you guys got a good beer scene i already mentioned the rocky mountain oysters but do you guys have your own unique just local fare oh that's a Good question. Uh, I'm sure there's game there. You don't get game. Yeah, lots of, that's probably the closest thing to local food would be, you know, wild game. You know, all the elk and deer, uh, you know, farm-raised bison. Um, surprisingly, through the summers, there is, you know, pretty long growing season. So we get pretty good produce from around the state. Uh, lots of good cherries and fruits and other vegetables as well 
But unfortunately, the the food scene here, that's one thing that I do miss compared to other places that I've traveled and, and been. You know, when my wife and I travel nowadays, we always try to make it a point that we get, go places that we can experience food that we can't get in Montana. So that's going to be Mexican food, lots of, you know, good Asian food, sushi. So that's one thing that I do miss, but... You know, if you want a good a good burger, you're gonna find one in Montana for sure. We just went out to a Malaysian restaurant and it was absolutely amazing. I destroyed yeah. so many bowls of Yeah, the food scene that you guys have in the DC area probably is a little different than what we have here in my small town of Phillipsburg. Yeah, I mean <laughs> we have an Uzbek cafe next to a Peruvian chicken place next to a um, halal Yemeni restaurant. Wow. <laughs> and then across the street, it's Korean. That's amazing. A lot of, a lot of Korean beer. <laughs> and the beer. So tell me about your, your libations. And I know you got some distilleries out there as well. Yeah, there are some great distilleries, but I think the micro brews are kind of one thing that Montana's really knocking out of the park. You know, of course, everyone is obsessed with IPAs, it seems like. So you can get a lot of really good IPAs. Um, but the thing that I've noticed just traveling around the state is that almost every town has a brewery. You know, it could be a town of 500 people and they're going to have a brewery. Typically, it's pretty good beer, actually. You know, there's a lot of farming for barley and different grains around the state. So quite a few of the breweries are using, you know, things that are locally sourced. I've kind of learned that hops are harder to find locally, but a lot of the other ingredients are are locally sourced and people are doing some inventive things with beer too. Uh, one thing that's put Phillipsburg on the map here in Montana is actually the brewery. They are doing a pretty amazing job and it's turned into kind of the local watering hole. And when people drive through Phillipsburg, it's typically one place that they stop is at the Phillipsburg Brewing Company. But one beer that they've been recognized for is a pumpkin barley kind of mold wine type of beer that would and they have side. i can't do that yeah stuff. it sure can but yeah they've taken that beer to kind of national competitions and won medals and they're doing some some pretty amazing things for a little small town brewery nice they're popping up all over here too oh yeah sure sure There's like just shopping centers. My parents have one near their condo that I still haven't been to when they moved there yeah. a few months ago. Yeah, it's but the cool great. thing, I think, and it's probably similar to where you are, too, is that those breweries will pop up and then they kind of help drive that local economy, which has kind of helped happen in Montana, too, in those small towns that, you know, people may not go to normally. You know, they hear there's a brewery there that, well, let's take a road trip, go check it out, yeah. and then... And, when yeah. you're there, you're going to have a meal somewhere. You'll probably stop into another business that, you know, kind of helps everybody out. So it's a pretty cool thing. They all seem to be very kid-friendly out here, too. Yeah. Yes, Which for sure. Because parents need to get out. Yes. Yeah, I've seen that. My my little sister lives outside of Missoula, and she has twin boys. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, they, they're they kind of a handful, but it's kind of fun being the uncle. Pretty nice role. but As long as you don't have to pay to feed them. Exactly, exactly. But it's very entertaining. They're four right now, and whenever they come to visit us, they always ask if they can go to the root beer house. Nice. 
which is the brewery where mom and dad can go have a have some re- relaxation as well. Do they make their own root beer? <laughs> well, not at that one, which is okay. the funny thing. They've been to breweries in Missoula that have have root beer. Um, the one in Phillipsburg does not make root beer, but they call it the root beer house. I'm not going to argue with them. Yeah. When we were in Philadelphia, <laughs> we went to Yards Brewing, and okay. their, their root beer that is made on the premise was – I would have rather have had that than the beer. Yeah, probably so, unreal. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a shot of rum in it or something would have been better. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what's the lifestyle like out there? I mean, you guys just, you know, our, our life here is everyone here lives to work. Sure. Like the work is your life. Everyone here is wearing their ID badges, you know, even at night and, and their tie might be a little loose, but here work kind of drives everything. Yep, and it's kind of the opposite in Montana, I would think. You know, one thing that I noticed when I moved to the state is that, you know, a lot of the people that I met, you know, kind of a common theme. There are, you know, a handful of Montana natives, but the majority of people that live here seem like they're transplants, where they've, you know, lived somewhere else and moved here. But majority of people seem like they moved here for a reason you know they're either following a passion like i was or you know they are following to be outside more they want to be able to hunt more they want to be able to hike more so it's pretty very active lifestyle you know people live here on purpose you know it's not not the easiest place to live you know in phillipsburg we have about 900 people we have one little grocery store so when you really need something you have to drive you know an hour to get to your costco or super walmart but you know it's kind of a sacrifice but on the flip side we get you know gorgeous surroundings we get the wilderness right there um you know you get a river in your backyard that you can fish on whatever you want and you really live you know, on just, a river well it's about 20 minutes away okay yeah i, I, I want to live on water. close <laughs> i want to live on like a trout stream with just a bench where i can just yep sit and, and i would things. love that yep <laughs> well i doubt you've ever been to the latorte in pennsylvania it's classic limestone okay where american terrestrial fishing was developed sure there sure. are benches and you can just sit and just watch the bugs and the fish if the fish are out there's a lot yep. of weeds there but it's just the coolest spot in the middle of the woods stream bench yep <laughs> that would be ideal <laughs> yeah but in montana just the amount of access that we have is pretty you know unmatched around the west you know unfortunately stream access has gotten to be a hot topic you know it's an ongoing topic in Montana, but the way that we have access now is pretty unbelievable. Um, you know, there's tons of public land that you can access the river from, but then as long as you access the river from a public point, you can go up or downstream in any direction as long as you stay below that high water mark. So it just opens up so much water that you can get to and so many opportunities that you wouldn't get 
you know, if you're fishing like in Colorado, for example, where, you know, the, the water laws are, if you own property on the river, you technically own out to the middle of the stream is your land. So people can't access the bank. And I've even heard some stories in Colorado of, you know, landowners watching boats go by. And if they see a boat stop, which means they drop their anchor, and make contact with their land that they are trying to call them in for trespassing. I've heard stories about the Dow Jones property in Colorado. That uh-huh. there were like armed guys, maybe with like cavalry swords. That it could be true. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, when I was out a long time ago, I just remember everyone, we were in a safe way, everyone looked like they were photographed for an REI catalog everyone was just <laughs> athletic looking and just in shape and there were so many dogs tied up outside the grocery store where all the bikes were too yep that like, sounds about right looking around i'm like this is just this is the antipode of where i live and sure we've been trying to move sure. out west for years hopefully at 11 11 years we're moving um, but yeah it is the things i'm looking forward to moving out west yeah. is the openness exactly and one thing that i love too is that you know one thing I really appreciate when I get clients out here is that there are a lot of places in Montana where you don't have cell phone service. And for some people, that's kind of a shock to the system. But it's something that I think is very beneficial, um, you know, kind of something that I think can be relished in today's society, unfortunately, where yeah. you can go to be somewhere and you don't have to have that device where you're constantly plugged into. You know, you can be in a spot for four or five days at a time and have no idea what's happening out there in the greater world, which, you know, I think is a healthy thing for people to do nowadays. Right. And I don't get a fish too often, but when I do, if I get a text, it just makes my blood level go up. I try to oh, sure. turn my phone yeah. off and it's the last thing I want to hear when I'm out having my time on the wall. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I've had a few a few guides that I know who've had some stern conversations with uh, you know, 15, 16 year olds that get in their boat and you know, you might be in a place where you have service and sometimes you have to ground people from their phone. Right. Then again, I've taken it from them. That might be on their phone all day and then you turn yeah. on the news and they're on the news that night and the yeah. is working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what should non-Montanans know about Montana? Is there any just anything out oh, there that that we wouldn't know about that just makes it extra awesome? Like hidden Boy. secrets that you don't want to really tell too many people? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, the winters aren't that bad, I guess I would admit to. You know, it's a little colder for part of the winter than it was in Colorado, but it's not its not like living in Canada or living in Alaska. And one thing that people may not know as well is that, you know, Montana is pretty far north. So that equates to in the summertime, we get daylight till, you know, sometimes 10, 1030 at night. And yeah, it makes for some long beautiful days are you just that close to the pacific time it, it's just being that 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 little further north i think is what makes the difference okay yeah 
So that's a pretty cool thing about being out here in June and July. You know, you get the sun coming up at six in the morning and then you don't see it get dark till, you know, 10, 1030 at night. So you get a long, long day to be, you know, outside and recreating. And yeah, it's pretty spectacular. I like it. What's the allure to anglers? Let's, let's start talking some fishing now. Sure. Why, why would someone want to come to Montana to fish? Which has been well, the allure since, I mean, since I was a kid, the magazines, the book. Yep. Montana. You know, there are obviously all of the world-famous rivers. You know, the Madison, uh, the Yellowstone, the Missouri, you know, all these, you know, mythical rivers, the Blackfoot. But the thing that I think makes it really special is that you have those famous rivers, but then you have rivers which aren't as famous, but are still, you know, spectacular. So I think just the amount of pure discovery that you can do is pretty unmatched in any other place. You know, you could fish, you know, the Madison one day, but then you could drive up this dirt road and find this little creek and you could have some of the best dry fly fishing that you've ever had in your life, you know, and you would probably never find that little spot, you know, if it wasn't for those big famous rivers. Um, I think that's one really special thing. And, you know, like I was talking about earlier with the, the amount of wilderness, you know, in the backcountry, there are some lakes and streams that, rarely see fishermen so you can you know hike into a lake and you can catch you know west slope cutthroats that are 18 inches long that have never seen a fly which you can't really find that in a whole lot of places absolutely and you know the thing about phillipsburg where i'm at now is that i really love is that just the diversity in species that are kind of within a couple hours is pretty unmatched you know there's a lake just outside of town here that is known for brook trout you know they started catch and release on brook trout in this lake about 10 years ago and now those brook trout have grown to be you know trophy size so you could catch a brook trout there that you know you normally think about being in canada and then you know outside of that you could go fish for brown trout and rainbows on a different stream you could have the chance at a bull trout on another stream. Um, you could go to the big hole, you know, and fish for Arctic grayling, which is one of the only rivers in the lower 48 that I know about that still has, you know, wild Arctic grayling that are living in the river system. That's pretty rare. Yeah. So just the diversity in species that are around here is pretty unbelievable. What's the density? I know some of those rivers are known per mile for the amount of fish they can have yeah majority of them average about two thousand fish per mile wow yeah which is pretty amazing some days it's very frustrating though yes exactly but some days you know some days fish don't bite as much as they should and you float through a mile river and you hook maybe one or two fish you're like man i don't know how they came up with these statistics but that's why they call it fishing, right? Absolutely. So, <laughs> what's the busy season? 
So the peak season is typically, you know, the summer. So whenever school wraps up, the end of May, early June. So June through kind of the end of August is kind of the busy season. Um, you know, and in Montana, we have two national parks. So Yellowstone National Park is right here, but then Glacier National Park. So having those two national parks draws a lot of, you know, tourist tourism through the through those summer months. They're gonna heard they're gonna rename Glacier. Really? It's gonna be Glacierless Park. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately that's getting to be the truth. And last summer they did have a couple of fires that went through there, which, you know, is not helping that. <laughs> I imagine. So Tell us what it's like on a your your summer. What's the schedule like? Butt crack at dawn, pack the boat, cooler, gear, fish yep. kill, what should be dark normally, but it isn't. Yeah, typically you find most clients, they want to be off the river by, you know, dinner time, six or seven. But yeah, you know, for me, one thing... One thing that you wouldn't probably realize if you don't live in Montana is that we do drive a lot. You know, you mentioned earlier driving an hour and going 11 miles. Um, you know, in Montana, we say that you drive an hour to get about anywhere. So there is a fair amount of driving involved in a lot of my days. But, you know, fortunately, we're driving through beautiful scenery um, instead of driving through traffic, which is pretty cool thing but yeah we'll drive to the river you know we'll get on get on the boat and float through the day have a great lunch on the on the water and then you know be off by around dinner time and a lot of thing one thing that clients don't typically think about is that after you drop them off then more work starts so you got to clean out the cooler and get the boat reorganized and you know get things ready for the next day so you know, you're finally going to bed around dark and then get it up and do it again. But, you know, it's pretty pretty hard to beat that lifestyle as opposed to sitting in a cubicle through the day, I would say. Yeah, there's some people out there, I'm sure, that just can't wait to get in their cube just breathing recycled air. Yes. And eat a bad lunch <laughs> and not That's right. seeing daylight. Exactly. That's exactly. not the type of human I am. No, no, I, I relish being able to be outside, you know, pretty much every day of the summer, I get to be outside, which is pretty special thing. Yeah. So what are some of these rivers that you're driving to, to guide and what makes you pick say one river versus another? Would it be, you know, the bull trout in one versus grayling in another? Sure. You know, being in Phillipsburg, we have, I have about, I would say four rivers that I kind of will cover and I kind of choose it based on, you know, a number of things based on how many days a person is fishing the area, you know, where the best fishing is. But, you know, right here locally in Phillipsburg, we have Rock Creek. So you mentioned earlier the testicle festival actually was held at the bottom end of Rock Creek, right where Rock Creek dumps into the Clark Fork. How about that? Did you so have where Phillipsburg is, no, I haven't been to the festival yet. Okay. So Phillipsburg is at the headwaters of Rock Creek. So it's about 50 miles upstream from the infamous festival. Um, but So Rock Creek is about 20 minutes from my front door, and 
it's kind of a unique fishery in a way because it has a kind of a limited floating season. When the water's up during the, you know, the early spring, early summer, you're able to float it. So you can float down with rafts um, and it kind of works out pretty spectacular because you get to float it during the peak of the stonefly hatch. And Rock Creek gets one of the best salmon fly hatches that I have have witnessed. Um, so you can float Rock Creek till July 1st, and then after that, it's exceptional wade fishing. You know, lots of lots of great access, you know, easy wading, you know, great fishing through the summer too. So Rock Creek is here locally, and then the lake that I mentioned with the brook trout is called Georgetown Lake, and that's about 15 minutes from my front door as well. Georgetown and Rock Creek, this sounds like D.C., I know. Funny, huh? <laughs> yeah. So typically when people are here, I try to give them that local flavor for sure. And then, you know, from Phillipsburg, you drive hour to an hour and a half and you can access uh, the Clark Fork. You can access the Blackfoot River, uh, the Bitterroot River and the Big Hole are all within about an hour and a half. And, you know, I think it's pretty special when people come here for, you know, five or six days, you can show them something different every day, you know, because all these rivers, even though they are, there is, you know, similarities between them, they all have their quirks and they all fish a little differently. Each got you know? its own personality. Exactly, exactly. You know, like Rock Creek through most of the summer is, you know, kind of your classic freestone fishing attractor dry flies. Um, you might go over to the big hole and you get, you know, a huge trico hatch in August and you're trying to match a size 22 trico to some, you know, sipping trout. So, they're all all offer a little different, you know, fishing opportunities. Is not just the fish and bugs, are there different types of water you're looking at? Riffle, oh yeah, runs. for sure. Like, so each one's got its own just yep, own characteristics. Yep, for sure. You know, there Rock Creek is, you know, more riffles and runs. Uh the Blackfoot is more big riffles and the big deep slow moving holes. So they all they're all kind of unique in that way. And what kind of boat are you putting in? Uh, most of the summer, I run a Clacka Craft drift boat, um, and then How once long is water, it? it's a Clacka Craft. How long? Uh, it's a 15, okay. 15 foot. Yeah, so it's fairly nimble, gets around very easily. And then through the tail end of the summer, you got to switch over to running a, like a 13-foot uh, three-person raft. You know, some of the rivers, parts of it can get a little skinny and wouldn't really want to be running my drift boat over some of those, some of those rocks. Yeah, that, I've got a stealth craft. And... The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history, designed by John Browning. The 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Sometimes I wish I had a bumper boat just because the rocks make me yeah. nervous. 
Sure. Yeah, there were a few summers where I had to use my drift boat on some of the lower rivers and beat up my drift boat a little bit. And kind of a funny story is I have a a client who lives in upstate New York, and he went into a fly shop there to buy some materials one day. And he goes into the fly shop and, you know, picking up stuff for pretty specific patterns he you know he was out here in the fall and we fished streamers quite a bit so he was you know grabbing stuff to buy streamers and the guy in the fly shop asked him like so where are you going and he told him he's like oh i'm going to montana and the guy in the shop you know it's like uh who are you fishing with he's like uh john mckinney and the guy at the fly shop was like huh john mckinney and this is kind of upstate new york middle of nowhere He's like, I think I know that guy. Is he kind of a, got a big red beard, kind of a short guy with a beat up clacker craft? And the client's like, oh, that sounds about right. <laughs> but the guy that was in the shop actually lived um, about half an hour from here in Phillipsburg. And I had actually had him in my boat one day when we did a cleanup event on part of the Clark Fork River. And that was following one of the summers where I had, you know, had to use my drift boat on some of those low rivers and it had gotten beat up a little bit. But yeah. I thought it was pretty funny that the, the tails of my boat have traveled all the way to the East Coast. But thankfully, my wife reassures me that I'm not that short, too. So that's a good thing, too. You can always put lifts in your wading boots. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. That's episode <laughs> reference. Yep. <laughs> All right. What are techniques that you might have people use in general for Montana streams or between different bodies of water? Sure. You know, one thing that I think is kind of unique, um, it happens in a lot of places, but your techniques kind of evolve through through the season. In the spring, early, early summer, when the water is a little higher, um, really enjoy fishing streamers a lot you know in that higher water you can get away with fishing those big ugly bugs and you can you know elicit some of those bigger fish to to come out and, and want to play so you know fishing streamers during the high water is something that's really fun um you know you get some people who you know, can't really fish the streamers or don't really understand it, then, you know, you can even fish a streamer below an indicator and dead drift it and, you know, have the same amount of success. Um, but then once your waters start to re start to recede following, you know, the runoff, that's when you get all your major hatches that start to happen. So you get the stone flies that start to pop out. Um, so your golden stones, salmon flies, your yellow sallies, you know, those all start dancing around. So that's, you know, obviously you're going to be fishing, you know, big dry flies at that time, which is super fun. Um, Any particular patterns come to mind? Oh, boy. You know, one thing that I really always go back to is the stimulator you know you get these new patterns that are coming out but the old stimulator and different sizes different colors maybe add rubber legs here and there on the stimulator and that can be really effective during some of those stonefly hatches and then you know following those stoneflies you get pmds which start to crawl around so you, your mayflies uh, you get green drakes for part of that early summer too 
start to get caddis that are hatching in the evenings. Um, so a lot of that part of the summer, you really hopefully can fish dry flies for most of the time. But, you know, a lot of days, you know, you get a strong dry fly bite in the morning or in the afternoon. So during the middle part of the day, you might drop a little bead head below your dry fly and, you know, cover both your bases at that point. And then, you know, going into later summer, you get the terrestrial fishing starts to kick in, you know, your grasshoppers. But one of my go-tos as you get into later summer, I really enjoy fishing amp patterns. You know, the hoppers are a great kind of lead fly that people can see really well, but then you drop a little parachute ant behind that. And yeah, the trout really seem to key into those as it gets later into the season. And then, you know, as you transition into the fall, you know, the thing that I think makes the fall really special is that you can fish every technique in one given day. You know, you can start out fishing streamers and have some success. You know, you get a little hatch that comes on. You can fish a little blue-winged olive um, or an October caddis. And then, you know, you can stop at some of your favorite holes and buckets and run a nymphrig through there and catch fish that way, too. So that's really, you know, most of the season you can get away with doing that. But I think the fall is really that time when you can, you know, really make it a goal where you can catch fish on all three techniques today. Are there any local patterns that are kind of specific or unique to an area? Yeah, I think, you know, every river you go to, you kind of find a fly shop and they might have something that looks a little different than you might find somewhere else. Um, you know, one thing, one fly that comes to mind or a couple patterns that come to mind um, on the big hole in the in the early, early summer, they've come up with this pattern called a yuck bugger which is basically a combination between a yuck bug, kind of a traditional pattern, and a woolly bugger. But they've kind of crossbreed them to make this yuck bugger, and it's a killer fly, you know, during that high water time. And there's really only one fly shop where you can find that pattern, which is pretty cool. And then, you know, as you go into the summer, you get some of your mayflies that are hatching, um, a guy that lives on the Bitterroot River, he developed a, a fly called a Brendel shoot, which is basically a parachute Adams, but it's got kind of a different tint to the body, kind of a pinkish brown to the body. And, you know, once those PMDs start kicking around, that Brendel shoot is a killer fly on pretty much all of our rivers. And, you know, it's one of those things, like I mentioned earlier, where there are only a few fly shops where you can go into and you can find, find that pattern. So unfortunately, part of, part of the downside is that when you're traveling around and guiding through the summer, you've got to stop in every fly shop and you're forced to spend money in all those fly shops. So it adds up, but you know, it's, it's, part of the game and my wife saw my hairline order bill yesterday yeah. she's like <laughs> straight up like wtf like yeah exactly <laughs> and, and knowing that they're all kind of it's all going to be just destroyed anyway or lost yes. trees yep that's right it's like that simpsons episode when the guy's got the faberge eggs he's like i got a faberge egg problem and he just buys yep. them and drops them 
<laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's one thing that I, you know, before I got into guiding, all my flies were very precious to me. I would go to a fly shop, I would buy two of one pattern and maybe one of that pattern. And you'd always be very devastated when you lost that fly. But, you know, once you start guiding, you know, flies become, like you said, disposable. Yeah, clients will be like, no, no, I'll go up to my neck and get it. And I'm like, I know, exactly. We're not ruining the hole for a fly. I can come back and get it another day. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) And are the fish any different in Montana? Do they behave differently? Do they act differently than, I mean, you grew up in Colorado, say down in there. Sure. Uh, I would say not really. You know, most of the fish, you know, typically going to hold in your typical fishy looking water. You know, there are obviously some rivers that get, you know, maybe more pressure at certain times of year where the fish can end up being a little spooky or they get educated i guess where you've got to have that right drift you know to really fool them and you know they know when there's any drag on that fly at all they're not going to eat it so you definitely get those fish that have phds in some of the rivers but you know more or less i think the fish kind of behave similarly to the way they do throughout the west so who who is your dog there? I hear some flopping around. Oh, you hear him? Yeah. What do you have? The big monster, Gabe. What kind of dog is he? He is a black lab bull mastiff mix. Wow. He weighs about 100 pounds. My goodness. He is unfortunately the opposite of a boat dog. You That's get him like in the Dr. boat, Jones. and he's like having an extra person in the boat. Yeah, my dog only likes going in the boat when he's sitting on someone's lap in the yeah garage, or the driveway, and we're having happy hour in the boat. You'd be sure. surprised how often happy hour happens just in a drift boat in a driveway. It's very true. Yeah, yeah. it happens at the end of the day a lot through the summer. Yeah. My <laughs> boat's just comfy. I love being in my boat. It's it's like home to me. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm more comfortable sitting in that rowing chair than most other places. Yep, I would agree with that. I would agree. Right, so <laughs> do you provide gear? And if so, or do the clients need to bring their gear? And if so, what? would you tell them to bring you know i essentially provide everything outside of waders and boots um so i typically provide fly rods reels um provide all the tackle all the flies i take care of um you know outside of you know the waiting waiting gear so that is the one thing and then you know one thing that you always want to be prepared for coming to montana would be lots of appropriate layers um you know the weather can change very frequently up here so you know i've seen snowstorms happen in mid-june so you want to make sure that you have lots of lots of layers uh lots of waterproof layers um but outside of that you know i try to take care of everything else what's the uh what's the rod setup typical for your clients uh, you know, I have, uh, right now I'm running pretty much all Orvis rods. Um, I've got an H2 and a four weight, H2 and a six weight. I've got a recon six weight and a couple of access five weights. So that pretty much 
covers all your situations you know the five weights we run when we're going to be fishing dry flies maybe switching to a nymph rig um you know the four weight when you're just fishing dries uh six weight when you're trying to throw that heavier heavier stuff fishing streamers try to kind of cover the gamut of any anything that we might come across during the day and you know try to make sure that i have a few different setups in the boat when we leave that day too so that you can switch a little faster than having to re-rig the whole rod what about lines are you a line geek at all you know i haven't become a line geek it seems like lines have kind of become in respect like flies where they last about a season and then you're putting a new line on there so typically i go with kind of a standard floating line um i have started messing around in the last couple years with different sinking lines for fish and streamers so that's kind of something fun to mess around with either a full sink to get it way down there during the high water or when the fish move lower in the water column or you know some some sinking lines which kind of just keep it below the surface which is some sometimes where you want to be with those streamers but majority of the time just using that standard kind of floating line what about your leader setup do you find you got to go small with tippets they're they might be shy yeah, it depends on the time of year, really. You know, when you get lower, clear water, we have to start dropping down in that tippet size quite a bit. You know, at some parts of the summer, be using, you know, 5X, possibly 6X, depending on what size of fly that we're trying to throw. You know, those little trichos that we get later in the summer, you've got to go super small sometimes, like, you know, 6X size, 22 flies or else you'll scare them away but you know during that high water early in the summer when we're running big streamers you know you can use 0x 1x and a lot of guys are using you know monofilament that time time of year you know your maxima with you know 15 pound tests and you know you're fine with that throwing the big streamers too question are you doing the whole modern giant meat streamer or are you doing you know classic buggers muddlers yeah you know i've kind of a traditionalist when it comes to streamers for the most part um i like fishing the woolly buggers uh you know zonkers are a couple of my go-tos um but then i have started messing around with some of the you know bigger meatier stuff but for the most part i kind of stick to to the tried and true you know when i go out fishing for myself a lot in the fall i'll try to experiment and use some of those you know double triple articulated you know big meat sticks and you know just for fun and you know i i think they work in given situations but in my experience you know the the woolly buggers and the zonkers, you know, tend to be pretty effective as well. Yeah, one thing with the articulated streamers is um, I'm no longer fishing them or tying them with two hook points or more than one hook point. Sure. I caught a bass last summer, and while I was unhooking the largemouth, it 
moved enough that the second fly got stuck in my hand. Oh, gosh. A large yeah. mouth, <laughs> oh, whatever. But the fish was still on and shaking left and right attached to my yep. thumb. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm not going to go for that. And I got a nice tetanus shot two days later. I had a similar situation where I was running two streamers where I had unhooked the fish and I threw it back in. And in that process, he hooked the streamer that I had tight on a little higher on the line and pulled the bottom streamer right into my hand. So I also find yeah, it remarkable. I that feel you. You can drop fish in and they'll just hook themselves on the way back down. You're like, what? Oh yeah, exactly. Strange. <laughs> as thing. hard as we worked for that. Yeah. And you just find that fly somehow. <laughs> Uh, anything else about the fishing and the fishing lifestyle out there before I move on with the next set of questions? Yeah, not that we haven't covered, I don't think. Any environmental factors or climate change things that you've noticed over the years since you've been there? Yeah, you know, it's definitely, you, there's uh, lots of cycles that are happening that seem to be abnormal. You know, like I mentioned the snowstorm in June you know, sometimes that's not very common. You know, it seems like the seasons are have shifted a little bit where, you know, sometimes October, November, you'll get, you know, super nice days and no precipitation when, you know, in the past, that might be when winter is really set in. So it seems like, you know, shifting of the seasons is kind of happening, which is kind of a strange thing. And, you know, also... You know, just the fact that the rivers and, you know, the, sometimes when we don't get a lot of precipitation through the summers, your rivers get super low. And then, you know, wildfires can definitely be an issue around here as well when you get those, you know, dry spells through the summer when, you know, typically you can expect some rain, but it's not happening. And now you've got forest fires that are happening and, you know, affecting different communities and air quality and things like that as well. And then kind any, of the, you mentioned the the geese earlier any animals that migrate differently like here the robins don't migrate anymore it's huh. just warm enough that i can look out and see 50 robins in my yard in january and it can be 10 degrees out sure yeah haven't really noticed that yet you know we still definitely have seasons in montana so in that respect, haven't really noticed it affect the wildlife or the bird population all that much. Um, but, you know, speaking of wildlife and kind of the warming temperatures, there are the past couple of years you hear of bears coming out of hibernation, you know, at earlier and earlier times of year than people have seen historically. You know, bears coming out in, you know, end of February when it gets really warm or early March. There's probably when, no food for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they will start to travel a lot or, you know, have to forage and find whatever they can. So that's kind of an interesting thing that's started to happen. You know, speaking of the rain, by this time Friday, we will have had uh, 70 inches of rain in D.C. in one calendar year. Wow, that's crazy. We've had over 22-inch rainstorms this year, I believe. They've closed wow. the ferry upriver 30 times. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah, it's weird. I, I see yeah. just differences here. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely definitely a factor. You know, it's kind of 
something that's a little scary. And, you know, from, you know, trying to make a living off of being outdoors, I think one thing that we can do is just try to expose more people to it, you know, get people out of the cities, you know, get them to appreciate being outside and appreciate the resources that we have. And hopefully people will start to, you know, support laws that are, you know, going to help that in the long run. Are there any political issues affecting your job at all? You know, the I mentioned the stream access earlier. That's kind of an ongoing battle in the state, unfortunately. You know, we have the great access, but it seems like every year there are, you know, groups that are trying to shut down different parts of the river or, you know, trying to privatize different areas. So that's definitely, definitely happening. Um, and then, you know, the whole public land debate that's out there, um, you know, happens all around Montana too. You know, you get a lot of people that are, you know, definitely in support of it, but then you have people that are there trying to buy up chunks that are adjacent to national forest. And, you know, there's that constant give and take of, you know, trying to keep that access there for everybody. Did your dog just open the door? I opened the door for okay. him. Like, Man, he's probably big enough to turn the door. He could. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, My yeah. dog is so dumb. He can't push the screen door open on the porch to come in. Even if it's open <laughs> two inches, he'll bark until you come and get him. No, he definitely knows how to get back inside. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, that's it for my serious questions. Let's go have some fun here with some non-serious questions. Uh, if you had a superpower to make you a better angler, what would you choose? Oh, gosh. Ooh. It'd have to be some sort of x-ray vision, I would probably say, to see what's really happening under those rocks, what bugs are really crawling at that moment. Or I would also say invisibility would be a pretty awesome superpower when it comes to fishing. And you yoga know, one, studios. What? Did I say that? Yeah. <laughs> One experience that I had in the last year is I got to fish in New Zealand and, you know, you talked about trout behavior. Trout behavior in New Zealand is like something I have not seen around the West. And if you could be invisible there, you would catch a ton of fish. Yeah, I heard Harry Potter cleaned up when he went down there. I would imagine. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite Harrison Ford movie? The Fugitive. Okay, if, um, let's see, are you related to anyone famous? No, okay. that's a good question. Worst place you've ever fished? Can I say the Potomac? Yeah. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> that spot is about five feet underwater right now. Is it really? Uh, I wish we had water like that again. Yeah. That was, a, that was at least at three feet. Yeah. Oh my goodness. No, that was a unique experience, I would say. Uh, the worst place I've ever fished. Boy, I would say, I'd say the worst because of traffic would probably be the Green River is a gorgeous river. But when the first time I went to the Green River, it was a constant parade of boats going down the river in front of me rafters and drift boats and just that experience kind of turned me off to that beautiful place unfortunately 
When is posing with a rod on your shoulder for a photograph allowed or okay? Uh, never. Thank you. I'm not in support of that. Yeah. Uh, strangest thing you've seen on the water? Uh, was probably an elk holding a fly rod in its mouth. Uh-huh. How did yeah, that I was. Fruition. That'd be a well, great logo. Yeah, I know. I need to utilize this picture a lot more. But I was fishing in Yellowstone National Park with a few friends. And, you know, you hear the saying that the grass is not always greener. Well, the water is not always better in that other side channel. So we were wading up the Firehole River, and my friends saw this island, and there was an elk sitting on the island. But they wanted to wade out to the island to fish the side channel. So I'm downstream from them. They wade out there, and they start casting from each side, and that elk stands up and starts to eyeball them. And before I know it, that elk is at a dead sprint for my friends. And fortunately, they got within about three feet of that elk before they got back into the water, and she stopped. But when all the commotion started, I yelled at my friends, And one of my buddies set his fly rod down on the bank before he booked it back to get, you know, across the river. So, so we get out and we're sitting on the bank and we're waiting to see what this elk is going to do. Like roll cast or. Yeah. So what happened is the elk walked up to my friend's rod eventually and starts to look at it. And eventually she picked it up by the handle And we actually got a picture of the elk holding the rod by the cork, and the line was sitting out in the water. That is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I think that's got to rank up there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. um, Last question. What, if you left at home, would ruin your day on a guide or just personal day fishing? Ooh. I would either say the nippers... Or the net. You know, I've gotten reliant upon my nippers. When I was a kid, I used to cut fishing line with my teeth all the time. And my mom actually makes dentures for a living. So she kind of scolded me away from using my teeth as a fishing tool. Can she make me like a a cap on my teeth for cutting? I haven't thought of that, actually. That's a great idea. I was watching Home Alone yesterday with my daughter, that gold tooth. Oh, yeah. Make one of those? (laughs) Probably. A little like nipper on it? Yeah, exactly. All right. So I've got relying on my nippers. Yeah, so what's what's going on in January of next year? You got some plans? Yeah, so I'll actually be headed to your neighborhood. So I'm going to be in D.C. for a couple days and then going to be heading to uh, just north of Richmond for the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival. Are you going to have a booth? I am, yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I've been, you know, this is my, going into my fourth year as an independent outfitter, so I'm kind of growing my business right now, and did a little traveling last year where I went to an outdoor show in Iowa, kind of random, but I had some clients there, Um, so just trying to find different ways to get out there, and 
I found this fly fishing show in Virginia because I have a few clients in D.C. I've got a few clients kind of in southern Virginia. I was like, well, might as well check it out. And, yeah, I'm pretty excited. It seems like it's going to be a really cool event. Um, You know, it's the 19th year they've done the show, so it seems like it's been successful. And, yeah, it should be fun. And before going to that, the Fly Fishing and Wine Festival on the 12th and 13th of January, going to host a kind of a cocktail party in Arlington on the 10th. Say, what bar would you be hosting that at? At one that you have introduced me to, yeah. Whitlow's on Wilson. Oh, good. We're going to have to find out what the uh, special is that day because beer ties yeah. one day and that's half price burgers. Exactly. Every day they've got something special. I know. I need to look into that. So it's going to be Thursday the 10th. And do people need to RSVP? No, it would kind of be an open house thing. Um, I've got a, a space reserved near the front bar, which, you know, can accommodate some overflow. But it's just going to be kind of an informal kind of get-together, uh, just uh, kind of start thinking about fly fishing for the next season. Um I'm also going to try and put together some kind of casting pointers and exercises that people can do to practice for fishing for next summer. So kind of get think, get people warmed up thinking about fishing for the summer. I'm looking for the summer. Yeah, exactly. So be there, going to provide some appetizers. You know, we'll have obviously the full bar there. So just be fun little get together. I like it. And yeah. you think you'll make it out to beer tie on the 10th? Probably not. Okay. Probably not. It's the following Monday, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, my, I'm dragging my wife along on this trip. So part of the deal is after the uh, festival in Virginia, we're going to head to the Carolina coast for a few days. Fantastic. So, yeah, it should be fun. It's a new country. We are expecting a predicted uh, polar vortex early january that sounds frightening yeah so prepared for that and <laughs> okay. we'll, have to, we'll have to go out and eat maybe like uh korean chi- fried chicken peruvian chicken. oh that'd be awesome we'll have yeah to figure out something that you've never <laughs> eaten before exactly i am totally up for that and where can listeners find you on social media and online Yep, so I'm on Instagram and on Facebook at McKinney Fly Fishing. Uh, my Instagram handle is McKinney underscore fly underscore fishing. And then my website is McKinneyFlyFishingMontana.net. Fantastic. Yep, and then like I talked about the Big Hole Lodge, you know, you can book me through the Big Hole Lodge. Um they're online as well you're an outstanding place to go stay for you know a full all-inclusive fishing getaway super duper all right well john thank you for your time today and i will see you in about a fortnight all right sounds good rob thank you happy holidays and uh we'll see you in the new year same to you take care man cheers thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast for more information or to contact rob please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. A life that has the stories to back it, a life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby, 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.